Take your copies of God's Word this morning and make your way to 1 Samuel 27. We're going to start there. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to be in a lot of places. Today we're going to be back into Psalms to see a little bit about David's own testimony and the situation here. So, I, Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, this happens often to me in, <laughs> in preaching. I knew I wanted to... My intent this morning was to bring a, a single sermon, single teaching today on David... Um, in, in his experience in Ziglag. But as I began to study it, I, I, I wanted to get the broader picture. How does he end up there? And, I, and I, I, I don't know if it was a mistake. I want to call it that. But I made a decision to start digging into the context. And I realized that I could try to give you an introduction to how David ends up in Ziglag. And they get to where I really wanted to, to go, which is which is 1 Samuel 30. But there is so much that I needed to take away from that study for myself. And I think maybe you do too. So I just decided to break this up into two, two parts. And this first part, the road to Ziglag, I've subtitled it, I've got an idea. I got an idea. Um, <laughs> She's not here this morning because her daughter, Myra, is a little bit under the weather. But when Anna was little, a little kid, and my wife had to tell me how old she was. You know what I'm going to say here. Um, she had a pretty strong speech impediment. Uh, matter of fact, only her mom could really understand her. I think Paul could understand her pretty well, too. Uh, I, I, I understood about half of what she said. <laughs> but but uh, my, my in-laws had moved to Kansas take another ministry we were in Florida and we we were hoping they were going to come to visit for one of the holidays and my father-in-law decided it just wasn't going to work out and so little Anna I don't know if she was three maybe three-ish she she uh, we were talking about at dinner oh you know grandpa and grandma aren't going to come and and Anna was she got this little frowny face and and she and then all of a sudden she brightened up she goes I got an idea she said grandma could come to our house and Grandpa could stay home. <laughs> and that's always been kind of a joke in our family ever since, that Grandpa could stay home. Because <laughs> she was mad at Grandpa for not coming. But that, I think her, her face just lit up. I got an idea. And then her th little three-year-old logic, it made tons of sense to her that Grandma could just come and leave, leave the old Grandpa, grumpy Grandpa at home. Uh, but really, that's why I've subtitled this um, I got an idea, because David wasn't much different here. When we meet David in, in chapter 27 here, he is still on the run from King Saul. Um, and he's getting tired. So he says, I got an idea. I know what I can do that will make Saul quit chasing me. Um, so David decides to pack up his wives. Right now he has two of them. And all of his followers, we're going to find out there were 600 of them, 600 guys who were in trouble with the law, basically. These were not, <laughs> these were not your upstanding citizens, but they could fight. Uh, matter of fact, that's why some of them were in trouble with the law. And they became David's men, so 600 guys, and they, they just decide to jump the border and move into the territory of the Philistines, the stated enemy of God's people constantly harassing them. But here's what David was thinking. He was hoping that if I move out of Israel, 
Saul will realize I'm no longer a threat to him and to his throne, and he'll give up the chase. And guess what? Verse 7 tells us that David ends up living among the Philistines for a year and four months. So, so if you imagine that. And we know from the rest of the book that after that 16-month period, Saul will be killed in battle, and eventually David will move back and take his rightful place as the anointed king over God's people. But here, in this chapter specifically, is a little bit different than the others in this. And you've got to understand it's a historical narrative. Um, it presents a couple of unusual challenges um, in trying to understand what God's saying here. Uh, one is that, unlike most of the biblical history related to David, listen to this, God is never mentioned in this chapter. Interesting, isn't it? In this section of David's life, this piece of history, God is, God is never mentioned. This is literally a godless chapter in David's life, and I think that's the way of the author trying to tell us something. And by the author, I mean the Holy Spirit. But we have to be careful. There's some pitfalls here. Um, Jehovah is not in any way mentioned, discussed, or consulted in chapter 27. Nothing. And, and although the Bible teaches that God is sovereign and he's in control over everything, in this chapter, the author never explicitly links God to anything that happens. And here's the deal, folks. That is not the norm in the life of David. This is a parenthesis. And it's, it can be a little confusing. Um, so related, related to that challenge, but far more common in the Old Testament, the author makes no comment on the morality, the rightness or wrongness of what happens in chapter 27. So we're really kind of left to try to figure things out on our own. Here's the problem. David does plenty of things in this chapter that carry a lot of moral freight. And we got to figure out, is that right or wrong? But nowhere does the author explicitly reveal to us what God actually thinks about David's actions. And that's interesting. Again, that's different. And that causes us to have to look a little bit more closely and be a little bit more careful as we break this apart. Now, let me give you some more context. David is living under bad conditions. And here's something I don't think we realize. Think about this for a minute. How long has he been running from Saul for his life? Now, it's just a few chapters in the Bible, in the history. But what's that timeline look like? Anybody know how long David's been on the lamb? And by the way, he's got wives with him. Can you imagine? I have never invited Elizabeth to go camping with me when, when, when we would go wilderness camping and hunting. There's a reason for that. She would hate it. Now, in the early days, she did go camping with us, and I take my hat off to you. Um, but can you imagine your wives are with you, and you're, and you're on, your, on the run, and no matter where you go in Israel, someone sells you out, word gets back to Saul, and here he comes again. We're going to see that a little bit. Do you realize it's been... It's been over a decade 
that David is running for his life from Saul. Living in caves, watching his back. And by the way, how do you hide with 600 men? Tell me how that works. That's part of the reason the word keeps getting back to Saul where he is now. What part of the wilderness he's in or what little town he's, he's, he's uh, taken up residence in. Can you imagine being harassed and chased for over 10 years? I imagine your wives are getting sick of that life. And honestly, before I, I give David a hard time here, and I want to be super careful doing that, this has got to be an exhausting way to live. You know? She's tired. And at least twice in the historical record, David proves his loyalty to Saul. He's got him. He could kill Saul. And he doesn't. And even Saul at those times openly confessed that his pursuit of David was sinful. Saul knew he was wrong. But one writer says that Saul was demonically driven and he just can't help but chase David. Two times. David could have killed him, but he wouldn't. And it shows David's commitment to God and God's sovereignty. So David just decides finally after 10 years, and I, I want to be careful, but I can't blame him. <laughs> I think we're hard to cast too many stones at him right here. After 10 years, David decides enough is enough. I'm going to take some action, some definitive action to get off of Saul's radar, and he does. He steps over the border, and he goes to a guy... The Philistines had several kings, not just one. So they, they had a, a, a plural monarchy, which, is, which was unusual in their day. But he goes over the line to a king named Achish of the Philistines. Interestingly enough, Achish's uh, palace is in a town called Gath. Does that ring any bells for David? What, what, what is it, Chris? Yeah, that's Goliath's hometown. And he had visited there once already and just about got himself killed because he was carrying Goliath's sword. And it's like, can you imagine that? I'm going to come back and, oh yeah, here's the guy that killed Goliath. And we see later that Goliath had cousins and sons that were probably holed up in Gath. David was not, he got, he, the only way he got out is he acted like he was insane. And, and King Achish said, get this crazy man out of here. And they were scared to kill to do any harm to a crazy person because they, felt, they thought that they were crazy because of the touch of the gods on their life. So they would never kill an insane person. And that's how David got out with his life. But he comes back to Gath. Why? Why would it be safe now? Well, by this time, King Achish has heard the rumors. It's a very public breach between David and Saul because they're his enemies. Israel's their enemies. And he figures, well, David is obviously no longer welcome in Israel. And he's got 600 really good fighters, and I'll just make, him, make them my mercenaries, soldiers for hire. And that's exactly what happens. He becomes a mercenary. So, so broadly speaking, the timeline of this chapter, the, pop, the plot here, is although David's strategy does indeed solve his problem, it works. He, here's the problem. He does it without looking to God in any way doesn't consult God it's crazy God is excluded and is replaced by David's own logic and his wit and his good thinking you ever been there but David shows zero none whatsoever 
No faith or dependence on God here. And we got to see this in light of Hebrews verse 11, or chapter 11 and verse 6. Look what the scripture says. It says, but without faith it is what, church? Impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is as a reward of them that diligently seek him. Not only does David not diligently seek God, David doesn't seek God at all. And he says, you know what? I got an idea. <laughs> I know what I'll do. You ever done that? <laughs> don't even pray about it. Don't, don't ask God. Just go do it because it's, it just seems to make, here's what we do. It seems to make so much sense. It must be from God. Be careful with thinking that, that way. There is zero evidence in this chapter that David seeks God at all and his independence from God continues until a crisis pops up in chapter 30, which we'll talk about next week. And that crisis forces him, kind of shakes him by the shoulders and wakes him up and says, hey, I've been going about this all wrong. My only hope is God. So let's spend some time this morning looking at the evidence of what I'm going to call David's unbelief. There's no other way to say it here. His unbelief. Now, we've got to be careful when we're critical of a man like David because he was a man of God. We've got to make sure we're not making judgments about his alleged failures based on our own judgments. So we're going to use the scriptures to help us evaluate David's failure to trust in God. And that's safe. Uh, with, and we're, with one exception. But you'll see why that, that's a fair exception. Matter of fact, we're going to be using David's own inspired words in the Psalms to judge his actions here. And just as pastors hate it when you use their sermons against them, I'm sure this was not comfortable for David either. But we're going to look to the Word of God with what God inspired him to write. So here's the first evidence or expression of David's unbelief is this, and you, and you can't miss it. He acted out of fear and not faith. He acted out of fear and not faith. Now, you've heard those two put together a lot since COVID, right? Faith over fear. And it's true. Um, that's not new. David acts completely out of his fear here. Again, it's been 10 years. David had enough of living like an animal running for his life. I'm sure he's got to be exhausted. You think the guy's tired after that? I mean, I'm exhausted when I take the boys out three days wilderness camping and hunting. I'm, I'm beat. I can't imagine doing this for this is your life for 10 years and you're dragging your wives along with you and the wives of your men. There's got to be kids involved. We find that later in chapter 30. Can you imagine? Mike, it's hard enough to sit through a service with Simon and Sophia. You imagine you're dragging them around the wilderness and God for Kristen, can you imagine Kristen 10 years running for your life? You just sick her on Saul, the whole thing will be over. <laughs> you know? He's wore out. He's done. But look at verse 1 of chapter 27. And you need to be in there yourself. Look what it says. And David said where, church? In his heart. Does he go to God? No. He, comes, he says, I got an idea. Now I shall perish someday at the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should speedily, quickly escape to the land of the Philistines and Saul will despair to seek me anymore in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hands. By the way, William, Ben, and Andy, uh, 
That's a syllogism. That's a conditional argument. And I'm not going to be there tomorrow. We've got a substitute. But when I come back, we might look at that and, and put it in categorical form and we'll start to test it. It is actually valid, but it's not sound. It's not right. The, the statements aren't true. What's he saying? I got an idea. No seeking of God. I am just going to jump over the border, live with the Philistines. And why would Saul quit chasing him? Two reasons. He's no longer a threat. He left, he left Israel. And number two, if Saul decides to chase him in the land of the Philistines, what's Saul doing? He's inviting open war. You don't do that. Right now, we're praying for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine because the great fear is that as Russia is amassing these troops illegally, that there's going to be an invasion. Saul's not going to invite that war. There's no way. So David's thinking is sound here. And it actually works. Um, but let's do some comparison. Write this down. Psalm 27.1. By the way, David wrote that. Look what he says. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I what? Fear. The Lord is a stronghold in my life. It's my walled city. Of whom shall I be afraid? Apparently Saul was the answer to that question. <laughs> it's just not in the Bible. He said, the Lord's my light, my salvation, my stronghold. There's no one to fear, no one to be afraid of. And had the Lord repeatedly shown him his faithfulness in those 10 years? Yes, he delivered David every single time. He was a stronghold of his life and his salvation. How do we square David's fear of capture with what he says in Psalm 23, 4? You know it. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what do you say? I will fear no evil. Why? You're with me and your rod and your staff comfort me. What's that mean? I mean, God is packing. God can protect me. He's got weapons. I'm not afraid. I fear no evil. Is David fearing no evil here? No, he's fearing evil, specifically evil with the name Saul on it. He's walking through the valley of the shadow of death with Saul's death sentence hanging over him. And brothers and sisters, David is fearing evil. As he literally says it in verse number one. And God, the covenant God of Israel, has repeatedly proven himself to David that he is faithful with his rod and his staff, comforting David this whole time. But in his unbelief, listen to me, David is acting as if he were all alone and God had abandoned him. When the opposite is actually true, David is getting ready to abandon God. Why? Because he feels like God has abandoned him. Even though history proves something very much the opposite. By the way, can anybody relate to that here? You've been in those places in your life? Stuff doesn't make sense and does not line up? I'm doing all this for nothing. Be careful. God has not abandoned you. Make sure you do not abandon him. Well, what about this? Psalm 56.3. Here's what he says. Write it down. Psalm 56.3. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God and whose, whose, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid for what can flesh do to me. It's the same guy writing this who's running scared from Saul. 
fleshly people like Saul. What can they do to David? According to that psalm, David says nothing. But here in his unbelief, David is convinced that flesh in the form of Saul and his army are absolutely going to finally kill him. They're going to get the better of him. I'm just rolling the dice and one of the days it's going to come up snake eyes, Saul's going to win, and I'm out. Because his motto in this chapter is not, in God I trust. His motto is, in my own thinking I trust. And brothers and sisters, when we start trusting our own thinking, it's going to take you down this path every single time. Now, we can't know if David consciously thought this or not. But what his actions are communicating is this attitude. And here it is. This is scary. I've waited for God to deliver me from Saul long enough and to no avail. So apparently it's time for me to take care of myself. In other words, I got an idea. It's cute coming from a three-year-old. But you and I do the same things. You know what's most disturbing here to me is that David knew what God had promised as he's reflected in the Psalms. God promised David that he would be the king of Israel. There's no way you can look at what David says in verse 1 as anything but a lack of faith. Samuel had anointed him. Jonathan, Saul's son, had repeatedly reassured him. And even Saul himself in chapter 24 affirmed that David was going to be the next king. What, what more do you need? But David is tired. He's exhausted from, from running. And he acts out of faith and unbelief. He is sure that unless he takes matters into his own hands, he is going to perish by Saul's hand. Here's the problem. That would make God out to be a liar. And scriptures say, let God be true and every man a liar. And sometimes that man's you. That woman's you. You see it? I want to be careful not to be too hard on this guy, but in fact, David was not trusting in God's promise to him. God said, I'm going to do this. And look, look what I've done up to now. Are you dead? No, you're still alive. I got you covered. But David said, no, I'm done. He is leaning on his own understanding and not on God. What was that his, his son would write many years later? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and what? Lean, don't lean on your best thinking. In how many of your ways? All your ways. Acknowledge him. Give the nod to God. Say, God, you're in this. What do you want to do? David doesn't do that here. And when we do that, he said, God, uh, Solomon says, God will straighten out your path. He's going to make the way straight where you're going to see where you're going or what you need to do next. David doesn't consult God. He said, I've waited long enough. I'm going to take care of this myself. Takes matters into his own hands and literally makes God out to be a liar. He was not trusting in God's promises. He was leaning on his own understanding. It was self-dependence and not God-dependence. Jot this one down, Psalm 37.3. David says what? Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend the friendless. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will bring it to pass. You know, what, you know what David is actually doing? He wasn't trusting in the Lord and dwelling in the land. He was trusting in David and leaving the land. 
And we do that. Do we not see ourselves? He wasn't delighting in the Lord, believing that in God's time, God would give him the desire of his heart, which is freedom from Saul's pursuit. Finally, he was not committing his way to the Lord, trusting that he would act on his behalf. Truth be told, God doesn't appear to be anywhere on the radar screen for David in this chapter of his life. So in addition to contradicting his own explicit counsel in the Psalms, there's another reason that we know David was acting in unbelief here. And this is a big one. Later, which I wanted to talk on today, but we'll do it next week, in chapter 30, a band of Amalekites comes to Ziklag where they're living and they capture his wives and everybody's wives and children and all their stuff. How does he respond to that challenge when he's under the gun? And he's in big trouble. Verse 7 tells us in 30, David said to Abathar, Abathar the priest, the son of uh, Ahimelech, listen to this, bring me the ephod. <laughs> We're going to God. Bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought it, the ephod to David. And, look at that, and David inquired of the Lord. They still got his people. But David is not cutting, taking shortcuts anymore because his, his, his wives are involved. Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake him? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake, and you shall surely rescue. So when the crisis hits, David did not appear to even consider relying on his own thoughts, his cunning, or his logic to recapture his life, no, wives. No, what does he do? He immediately goes to God, and he asks for God's counsel. He makes sure that God is in on this and that he's doing what God wanted done, not acting in independence anymore. This is the same response that David had back in chapter 23 when he discovered that Saul knew that he was in the city of uh, Keilah. He goes to God. He said, God, are they going to sell me out or not? God says, yep, they are. Okay, we better run. What's he do? He goes to God. Saul knows where I am. What should I do? God says, get out of there. These guys are going to sell you out. So he's in great danger in that town. What does he do? Without delay, he goes to God and he asks very specific questions so that he would know what he needed to do to find God's way out. You contrast that what we read here in 27.1, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day at the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Saul will give up seeking me any longer within the border of Israel, and I'll escape out of his hand. You know what we see there? Another thing, another sign of David's self-dependence. Check it out. Who's David talking to? He's talking to David. He is not talking to God. He talks to himself. Not to God. My brother David talks to himself all the time. <laughs> he has full conversations. He doesn't need anybody else in the room. But what's David doing here? He's talking to David. This is his internal thinking. He's thinking out loud. Does not bring God into this anywhere. Then David said in his heart, verse number one. That's a very different response to bring me the ephod. Let's get in touch with God and see what God wants to do. And a very different end. By the way, do you, do you see yourself in David here a little bit, church? Believer? 
What, when, when, when you're in a crisis, is your first response to go to God in prayer or is it to go to your own best thinking? Here's what we do. We figure the way out and then we say, God, here's what we're going to do. I just need you to rubber stamp this. Come on, I know I'm hoeing in your pea patch this morning. You know how I know that's what you do? Because I do the same thing. We come up with a whole solution. We say, okay, God, now make this all work and let there not be any problems with it. Tells us a lot about where we are. Here's, a, here's another proof, and I, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but you can't miss it in here. Um, this also tells us of David's unbelief, and it's found in verses 9 through 11. David's military activity while he was under the king of the Philistines is a sign of his lack of faith here. David literally wages an unholy, holy war. Look, look at verse 9. So he goes to live there. Achish gives him a, a, the city of Ziglag to set up a shop in. And look what it says, verse 9. And, and, he would, and whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but he took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. So he, Achish was getting rich, as well as David. But he kills everybody. That's a holy war. Look at the next verse. Then Achish would say, so where have you made your raid today? Notice what David says. Oh, against the southern area of Judah. Who lives in Judah? Israelites. Oh, southern, which wasn't entirely a lie, but it wasn't the truth either. Oh, the southern area of Judah. And then, and then he goes on to say in the next verse, or the, or the rest of the verse here. Or against the southern area of the uh, Jerahamelites or against the southern area of the Kenites. Here's the interesting thing. All of that were in the borders of Israel or on the very edges. And he's saying, so he's making, he's making Achish believe that he's, he's fighting his own people. And it wasn't true. He was fighting against the enemies of Israel. He was doing a preemptive strike so he wouldn't have to deal with these people when he became the king. But we find something else here. We see David's unbelief. We've got to think about what we've seen so far about God and, and the war that God calls warriors like David to fight against his enemies. Here in chapter 27, David fights against the Amalekites and two other pagan people living in southern Judah. We know about the Amalekites, right? They're the enemies of God from 500 years earlier. And God told Moses back in Deuteronomy, jot it down, Deuteronomy 25, 17. God tells Moses, don't you forget what the Amalekites did to you on your way when you come out of Egypt. Um, they attacked you from behind. Don't forget that. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, look at this, you shall blot out the memory from Amalekite under heaven. You shall not forget. That's a holy war. That's not what David did. Here's the problem. Um, it's, it's not what David did. It's why he did it. His purpose was not to wipe out these people for the glory of God because of their wickedness. Look what it says in the scriptures there, verse 11. David was saved, neither man nor woman alive, to bring the news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. And thus was his behavior 
And all the time he dwelt uh, in the country of the Philistines. You know why he wiped them all out? So there'd be no survivors to come back and rat him out and say, he's not fighting against the Israelites. He's fighting. Here's the problem. Every one of those tribes were the Philistines' allies. He says, he's killing your allies. But if nobody's left to tell the story, he's safe. Could it have been a holy war? Yes, if God had told him to do it for God's glory. David did it for his David's safety. Why? Because God was never brought into David's plans in the first place. And now he's got Achish thinking he's a traitor. He's killed his own people, which makes sense of the next uh, when we get next week into, into the situation at Ziklag. Um, Achish fully trusts David to go to battle against the Israelites. He's already been fighting them. He's probably number one wanted man in Israel. They all hate him. He's turncoat. He's one of us now. But he wasn't. You see what's going on here? No faith. He doesn't want anyone to survive and tell what David's been actually doing, killing the allies of the Philistines. So we see that problem there, that David is waging an unholy, holy war. David's actions here work out very well for him and his own people. And here's the problem. In some ways, they even work out pretty well for God. But a right thing done for the wrong reason is a wrong thing, even though it works out for good. So let's look at this from a purely circumstantial point of view, and I'll run through this fast, but this episode is a resounding success if you just look at it, here's the word, pragmatically. Pragmatically, this is phenomenal success. Let's look at it. First of all, David was right about Saul calling off the hunt for David once he got into Philistine territory. It worked! And what do we say today? If it works, it must be right and true. And that's how you get frozen characters and popcorn in the vestibule of the church and sermon series on movies. That's how you get the great awakening in churches today where critical race theory and intersectionality are hailed as the gospel when the true gospel is rejected. And it says the gospel is not enough when it comes to racism. We have to atone for our own sins. That is anti-gospel. That's how you get this stuff. If it works, it must be true and it must be right. It worked. Saul quit chasing him. And here's another one. Uh, he was able to acquire a safe place in Ziklag. He finally could rest. The author even tells us in verse 6 that Ziglag belonged to the kings of Judah to that day. David never gave it back. So when David took possession of Ziklag from King Achish, he had no idea that it would bless all the future kings of Judah, and indeed it did. Right? Third, as we've seen, David is also brutally effective in warring against the other pagan neighbors of the Philistines. When he makes these raids against the Girgashites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, in every case, look at this, he is destroying people groups who have been a threat to God's people for centuries. And God had told his people, go wipe them out, and they disobeyed. So David is actually God, doing God's mop-up work, but he's not doing it for the right reason. He's not doing it for the glory of God. He's doing it to save his own skin. But, but he's doing a great job at it. Fourth, the scholars tell us that David also profited from these raids 
listen to this, because he learned the battle tactics of the Philistines that he never would have learned if he didn't live among them. Who, unlike Saul and his army, the Philistines had learned the more formidable iron weapons. They learned ironworks and weaponry, and David picked that up from them. And he becomes much more effective in battle. So if he had never been there among them, he wouldn't have learned that David becomes a more effective uh, warrior. And it prepares him and his army for decades more successful fighting against, guess who? The Philistines themselves. He goes and learns from them and then uses their weapons on them. Man, this is pragmatic. This is all working out. Maybe this was a good thing. Here's, here's number five. David also masterfully manipulates Achish, the king, here. Achish swallows David's deception, hook, line, and sinker. He trusts when David tells him that he and his men have been making raids against fellow Jews. He absolutely believes it. And there's nobody left to say otherwise. And he's trusting David so much that by the time they're going to go to battle against Israel, uh, Achish even makes David his personal bodyguard in the battle. And he says, I'm going to show you what I can do. Listen to how he cleverly responds to Achish in chapter 28 and verse 2, if you've got your Bibles open. Look what he says. He responds to Achish. Uh, call for him to take his men to take up arms against fellow Jews by saying, "You got it. Now you're going to see what your servant can do. Now you get, watch what. Now you're going to see what we can do. Why? Achish has never witnessed them in battle. He's only gotten the the benefit, but he's never seen these guys fight. David said, "Oh, wait till you see what we can do. You know what? That's a very skillful, sly double entendre, is what it really is. What?" Uh, David is saying, you're going to see how, or Achish is thinking that David is saying, wait till you see how many Jews we can kill for you. When what he's really saying was probably more like, uh, wait till you see how many Philistines we can kill when we ambush, ambush you from the inside. David was not about to fight against his own people. So, we see David's unbelief. And it leaves no doubt that this strategy of David is anything less than a categorical success in the eyes of men. I gave you five things that really worked out great for David in this, even for his future. And brothers and sisters, this is where we feel the tension because I love that the Word of God is honest about history, good, bad, and the ugly. And it, it just doesn't feel good here. What are we to make of these seemingly two completely inconsistent truths placed side by side? Well, here's a thought of application here. I call this the so what. Here it is. God is amazingly gracious and merciful to his people, even and especially when we don't deserve it and we're acting foolishly. Can anybody say amen to that this morning? Anybody thankful for that this morning? You and I have been, David. Some of us are there right now. He, he's merciful. How in the world can God bless David when David is complete, doing all this stuff completely devoid of God's leadership? We really, and, and here's the problem. We really don't understand the nature of God's grace. Because the truth is, any blessing any of us receives from God, whether you're a believer or unbeliever, is a result of His mercy and grace alone, listen to me, not because of anything that's found in you. That's the real message here. 
It's not about David. It's about God. Jot it down, Psalm 103.10. Go back and read it later. But it explicitly says this. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. If he did, none of us would be drawn the next breath. Because we deserve death. Anybody glad God doesn't deal with us according to our iniquities? This amazing grace and mercy of God should cause us to remember that we must always be very hesitant about tying God's blessings to our obedience. You would be really careful about that. Really careful about that. Because that can breed a seed of idolatry in your heart. God is not blessing you because of your obedience. No, the fact that you can obey is God's blessing in itself. The fact that you want to is the kindness and grace and mercy of God. And I think this probably carries three implications, and I'll run through them quick and then we'll be done. But this idea of being really careful about tying God's blessings to our obedience. Here's the first one. We should not see any suffering or pain that we experience as an unfailing indicator that our lives are somehow not pleasing to God. Be careful of that. Something bad happens to somebody, we say, oh, there must be some secret sin. Anybody remember Job's friends? What a miserable lot they were. Right? And God puts the whammy on them at the end, and then they come to Job and say, boy, do we mess up. Would you pray for us? <laughs> right? They were not very helpful guys. Oh, you're, you got some sin. You're just being stubborn and prideful. If you just confess it, God would stop all this bad stuff from happening to you. Be careful of friends like that. Now, is there times that God disciplines us? Yep, but because, because he loves us. And sometimes that discipline's harsh, and David's going to feel that later in his life. Harsh, hard stuff. But it's all out of God's love. He loves his children too much to allow us to continue to live in sin. But be careful of saying, well, I must have done something to deserve this. Because that's not necessarily true. What do you deserve? Let's talk about deserve. You want to go on deserve? No, you don't. You want to go on deserve? You're not even alive. And that's the silly thing about that thought there. Listen, if God wants to get you, why has he been waiting so long? <laughs> One word. He can mess up your life and literally put you in a hell on earth till, you, till you're done with this life. He got, does he not have the power to do that? Does he not have the authority to do that? Yes, he does. So this whole thing breaks down. And that's what I said this morning in D group. Sometimes pain and suffering are just a result of living in a fallen world where suffering is just part of the equation. God uses it all, but it doesn't mean that we've done something to displease him. Now, what about the other side of that coin? We should not see God's blessing on our lives as an unfailing indicator that our lives are pleasing to God. Did God bless this act of David of jumping the border without consulting him? I just gave you five proofs that this thing worked out really good for everybody. But does that mean that David was right? Nope. Be careful of that in your own life. I got a friend of mine right now. He said, man, look. Look at all the blessings of God. 
Look at what we're doing. Look how right we are. Because we're right, God has heaped all these blessings. Boy, that's just scary to death. You start thinking like that. Because the Lord giveth and He also what? Taketh away. Don't be touching God's glory. If God's blessing you, it's because He's a good God. Let's leave it right there. Amen, brothers and sisters? Let's be careful not to cross that line. And here's the last one. It's a big implication. Don't you dare presume on God's grace by using it as a license to sin. That's a bad idea. That's a super bad idea. God's grace is empowerment to saint, not license to sin. It's the desire to do what's right. Even the most consistently devout believers can experience seasons of drifting. I call them flesh trips. You ever been on a flesh trip? That's what David's on here. His flesh got tired. Got the best of him. He said, I got an idea. I'm going to jump the border. I'm going to do some deception. I'm going to make it work. And he did. Until he didn't. We're going to look at that next week. Because see, flesh trips always end at the end of yourself. Because you don't have the resources that you need to make it work forever. And David's going to learn that the hard way in chapter 30. That's next week. We all drift. Some of us are drifting now. Some of us are on a flesh trip and it's time to come to the end of that mess. Amen? It's time to say, God, I am. Mm, I, I see where I am this morning and I'm going to stop running. I want you to give me the ability to repent today and I want to start consulting you for everything. David had forgotten that without faith it is impossible to please God. And I fear that you and I may have forgotten that as well. I mean, we don't have to wonder if God was pleased with David. Jot it down, Acts 13.22, craziest thing in the Bible to me. God tells us that David is a man after his own heart who will do all of my will. Wow. <laughs> Go read David's 75 Psalms and see the amazing heart he had for God. He really did. For his name, his fame, and his acclaim. And yet here in chapter 27, even though over the last decade God had repeatedly rescued him from Saul, he seems to be acting here as if God did not exist anymore he got tired of running got tired of fighting and he forgot that without faith it is impossible to please him I want to make one more statement and end with a scripture and I'm, I'm saying this to myself because I not only have I been here I am here and I may share may not but next week a little bit about hard journey the last four years have been in our family and it continues but here's the thing that I needed to take out of this for me maybe you need to hear it too we never have the right to dictate to God when we've had enough and that we can no longer trust him be careful of that
You ever been there? Any honest people in the house today? You ever just get tired? It's like, man, God, what have I done? I've heard somebody. I read y'all's Facebook, by the way. That's how I, that's how I better shepherd you. I've seen some of your posts. Lord, what have I done to deserve this? Right? Oh, I'm so tired of the fight. I'm so tired of running from the Saul's in my life. I just want some peace and quiet, and I'd like to sleep under a roof instead of a cave. My wives are driving me crazy. Can you imagine poor Dave? I got an idea. You know what, God? I've had enough. I can't trust you anymore. So I'm going to go with my own cunning logic, my wits. I think this is a pretty good idea. And doesn't God end up blessing it anyway? Doesn't mean David was right. Because his why was all wrong. So I want to close with a quote from my namesake, the Apostle Paul. That guy didn't have an easy life, did he? Didn't. He had this thorn in the flesh. We, oddly enough, Scripture doesn't tell us what it was. And uh, if you'd like to go on the Internet, you can find some absolutely insane ideas that people have as to what it was. Might have been his eyes, because we know he was struck blind with scales. We know he had an eye problem. We see that in some of the endings of his letters. Whatever it was, it was a thorn. And what's a thorn mean? It hurt. And he got tired of this stinking thorn in his side. And so he goes to God, not once, not twice. Goes to God three separate times. And this is the guy who just prays over people and stuff happens, right? And now he's praying, God, this thorn, you know this thorn, remove it. You've used me to, you've healed people through my word, laying on the hands, whatever. I've seen you do the miraculous. I just need you to take this thorn out of my side. God doesn't answer three times. Now, after the third time that Paul prays this, God answers. And his answer is not what Paul wanted to hear. Because he says, you know what? My grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And then listen to what he says. For when I am weak, what? It's only when then I'm strong. God says, no, you know what you need, Paul, more than relief? You need the thorn. Because it keeps you and I close. Keeps you aware of the brevity of life and the weakness of your flesh. And it keeps you running to me. And instead of pulling a David and jumping the border, you know what Paul says? Works for me. Matter of fact, I'm going I'm to start bragging about it. And you send it all my way that you want to. And I'm not going to complain. And we have nothing in the record that says that Paul ever brings that up to God again other than to say thank you. 
because Paul says, I just believe you, God, that when I'm weak, is really the only time I'm strong. So I'll take the weakness. Thank you very much. Can I ask you a question? When's the last time you prayed like that? When's the last time you said, God, this kid's driving me crazy. I don't know what to do with them. Fix them. But instead, you find yourself praying, God, thank you that I am totally clueless how to help my child. Because when I am weak, it's then that I'm strong. Don't jump the border. Let there be no chapter 27 in your life. Keep God in the center of it all for His glory. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's pray together. And as I'm praying, I think Joseph's in here. He's going to lead us in a response song. And I want you to respond in your heart to the Lord through singing <laughs> a song that's perfect for this. is called Because He Lives. Matter of fact, Joseph, we'll just do that first verse in the chorus of this song. But I want you to join me as, as we pray, prepare our hearts to sing this song. Father, the road to Ziglag, we've, we've all been on it. And, and I'm not going to lie, I've jumped the border more than once. I got to that point where I said enough's enough, hurts too much. I'm going to do some things my way for a while. And I thank you that in your kindness you've never let that work out for me. Because your name is more important than my misunderstanding. And Lord, I pray that as some of us are in a chapter 27 time in our life this morning and I, I'm, I'm thinking there probably are some of us there right now that you would grant us the gift of repentance and jump us to chapter 30 where we find ourselves encouraging strengthening ourselves because of your promises we return through repenting today we ask you to do this for your glory Christ's name. Amen.